Hello and welcome to the SAE Tomorrow Today podcast. I am your host, Grayson Brulty. Keep up with the twists, turns, and acceleration in the mobility industry between episodes with SAE's incredible SAE Smart Brief. Click the link in the show notes to subscribe and receive the latest industry articles, updates, news, and announcements straight to your inbox. On today's episode, I sat down with Riley P. Brennan, General Partner, Trucks Venture Capital, to discuss the unique focus the fund has in transportation, how future acquisitions from big box retailers will impact mobility, and the relationship between the price of a product and the value it offers to consumers. And away we go. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to the podcast, Riley. Thanks a lot, Grayson. Thanks for having me. Super uh, happy to have you here. We talked to a lot of individuals that work in Detroit and that grew up in Detroit, and you just happen to be one of those individuals that grew up in Michigan. What did that impact have growing up there on your overall perspective on mobility in the automotive industry? You know, it's a company town, it's a company state. So when you grow up there, you you know, if your parents didn't work for a car company, they're probably heavily impacted by it. You know, whether they, you know, owned a restaurant or worked at a restaurant, you think about the customers that come in, so many of the economic forces at play in southeastern Michigan are related to auto. So um, it's huge. Uh, personally, I was one of those kids who grew up who loved race cars and I loved in the 80s, I loved European cars, frankly, because American cars in the 80s weren't that great um, outside of race cars. So I was obsessed with European stuff when I was quite young um, and always wanted to work in the car industry when I was a kid. So I, my first job was actually working for a car magazine when I was an undergrad in Ann Arbor. It's quite fun. That's fun. Did you race during those times? Did you ever get out there on the track? And Yeah, I did some autocrossing, but... As far as becoming like a real race car driver and doing wheel-to-wheel stuff, that was never something in the cards for me. I think probably just risk and skill. I didn't have an appetite for uh, for the risk, and I didn't have the skill. So um, I prefer to do stuff around the car industry and let the professionals be the professionals. Well, you're a professional in managing risk with being a venture capitalist today. What made you first become interested in becoming a venture capitalist? Uh, well, to be honest, I don't think I really heard the term venture capital till I was about 30. So, you know, I was in, grew up in Michigan, raised by a single mother. And, you know, it wasn't in the landscape for me to even think about investing when I was a kid. I really just wanted to work for a big company. Um, and an interesting thing happened to me about a decade ago, which is we moved to California and I started to see researchers who were trying to start companies and it seems bizarre because nowadays it it feels like anybody can raise a ton of money for an autonomous vehicle company or a ev idea um, but it wasn't that way in the early 2010s it was actually quite difficult to get financing so the insight i had was god there's a lot of smart people here and they need money and that was really the kernel of the idea that allowed us to start trucks venture capital and so it was born out of necessity and just seeing this gap and so i figured well this is the right time and the right place for this because the big companies don't yet understand that some of these skills are really important like software and robotics etc and that was why i started the fund it wasn't oh i'm i'm coming from the finance world and want to apply finance to automobiles it was just a love for the industry and then seeing that gap and almost by accident um, required me starting my own fund because not a lot of funds were interested in that space in the early 2010s. 
And boy, oh boy, have times changed, where billions and billions of dollars from the institutional guys are all pouring into the valley. You're there in the early days. You're supplying much-needed capital to some incredible engineers and incredible entrepreneurs. Is that network of the relationships and the trust that you built there being there first allowing you to continue to find new innovative companies to invest in? Uh, that's a good question. I, you know, and I, I guess embedded in your question is the idea of where do these people find these founders? Because the ideas look a little strange in the beginning, right? I mean, I think a lot of the venture capital returns you see are often, you know, these firms made investments six or seven years ago when the idea probably looked a lot more strange back then and um, maybe didn't even sound like a good idea. So one of the curious things is how do you get to those people early on when they're starting a, a company? And I will admit that one of the big boosts we got at Trucks is that we just focus on transportation. So our fund only does transportation, whereas if you look at a lot of the other venture capital funds that start, they're kind of a little bit of everything. You know, they're like doing, you know, social networking and they're doing cars and they're doing enterprise SaaS. And so I think it would be very difficult to start a new fund as a generalist. Um, the benefit of that could be you could do whatever you want theoretically, but you'd have to fight against the thousand other great VC funds. Um, Trucks had the benefit of just saying, this is the only thing we do. And what I wanted to do when we started the fund was if you focus just on that one thing, then all the great founders theoretically will probably learn about you and they'll have to come and talk to you. Um, and so it took a while, but you know, um, Trucks is one of very few funds that just focuses on seed and transportation. And so we see about 100 companies a month, um, about 1,000 a year in transportation. And um, we don't see every company, but I think we see a lot of them. Um, and how we do it is, frankly, just you know, other founders we backed that might recommend us. Uh, you read FOT, our newsletter, and a lot of founders read that as well. My partner, Jeff, has an IP firm um, that's been a, an amazing source for us as well. So. There's a couple different ways that every fund gets their deal flow, um, but it is the constant, I think, stress of any early stage investor is thinking about uh, fearing that you're going to miss the next great company, that you're not going to know about it. Because if you're early stage, like us, you can't wait for it to show up in TechCrunch before you read about it. Like you need to know those founders three months before they start the company. So they talk to you first. And that's it can be stressful, I think, in the very beginning. Your newsletter for the record and for our listeners is absolutely a must read and it's incredible because you break stuff, you give incredible insights before it gets gets in TechCrunch or more like the Financial Times or the journal. So give you a lot of credit there. And there's one company that you invested in and we've had him on the podcast was Gaddock. I'm a big fan of Gaddock. How did you find Gaddock before they got the Walmart deal and then all suddenly they're in all the major outlets now? Yeah, that company, uh, the, the source for that one was um, we have a contact at a great accelerator that not a lot of people, I think, appreciate called AngelPad. And the founder of AngelPad, Thomas Corte, I remember reached out to my partner, Jeff, and said, these are some of the best founders we've ever seen. You have to meet these guys. And they're also working on automation. And so, you know, great founder recommendation. And in our space, it was just a no-brainer that we would would meet with them. So, um, and that team, I think originally when we met, they were all living in the same house. It was kind of a work 
live situation where they all live together. Their burn rate was incredibly low. Um, and at the time they were focused on logistics, they hadn't yet figured out middle mile. And so the Gaddock kind of value prop for those who don't know is, you know, they're going after what we have now sort of described for them as a middle mile AV logistics, which is from a distribution center to like a mini DC or to a retail store. And so their customers, they are Walmart, blah, blah, et cetera. And frankly, so much interest has gone into logistics AV, but mostly in class A trucking, as you know, Grayson, um, there hasn't been a huge amount of focus on the other parts of logistics. But if you look at the way that goods actually get moved around, um, in sheer mileage, class A trucking dominates because of the long distances. But if you look at the individual trips, um, there's certainly a ton in last mile and there's a lot in middle mile. So. Gaddix, the sort of undisputed leader in that space. And um, yeah, I think that there's some big things coming from them this year as well. I would agree with that. I know I emphasize the Walmart thing, but Walmart is an incredible company that does a lot. But they're very public with their Gaddix relationship. Tom Tom Ward from Walmart publicly talks about it in speeches. He talks about it on LinkedIn. How was they able to get the Walmart machine to publicly endorse them? That's a great question. I think the the... Um, well, I guess at a macro level, if you take a step back, um, I think one of the big things you have to think about with a lot of these big logistics players is a lot of what Amazon does, I think you'll see the other players do 12 to 18 months um, behind in many cases. So if you look at, you know, what they've done with warehouses and what they've done with automation in that space... Um, usually it's Amazon first and then everybody else kind of trailing behind. And what's really cool about the Walmart thing in Gattuck is it was really the first, Walmart was the first in doing that. So it wasn't like you heard Carrefour or Amazon or somebody do a deal with Gattuck first. It was Walmart. And I think uh, without speaking for the Walmart guy who did this transaction, um, or did the contract with, with Gaddock, I think that was actually really important for them to show that they could look at their logistics chain in a, in a different way and be the leader in that. So, um, And then the other part is I think, you know, Gaddock for a long time, um, you know, it's just really founder-led sales. The founder is an amazing salesperson who's got just this um, great ability to pull his own team together and has been really great with customers. And sometimes I will say one of the things that we often get wrong is thinking about, is this founder really going to be a great salesperson from the, you know, is this really a great dynamic founder to sell into these big companies? And I often get it wrong. And so I, I think when we first met Gotham, the CEO, I was probably like, well, he's really technically savvy, but could we pair him with a great salesperson? Could we have Grayson go in and be the head of sales for Gaddock. And um, as it turns out, these founders are often really great at selling if they're really clear about communicating. And he's, he does that well. I would agree with that. And we've spoken offline, uh, Gautam and I, and, and he's made hard decisions. And I'm really impressed with the decisions. And he focuses on profitability. And it has to make financial sense. And I give him a lot of credit for that. So you have Gaddock is working with Walmart. Amazon bought Zooks. And the big question that I have is, when does Costco make a move? 
they have the warehouse model, but to me, it seems like there's a huge move for them to go into the delivery business or for Target to make a move, like a big box retailer that Americans know, like, and trust. What do you What do you think? Undoubtedly, this decade, I think, is going to be defined by really these two twin um, forces. One is zero emission transportation, and the other is logistics automation. And so which is, by the way, why I think Amazon isn't done making acquisitions in this space. This is, oh, they bought Zooks for a, a billion dollars. Uh, therefore, they've that's their autonomy work, and that's done. I think that there's a lot more coming from all these players. Um, I think you're right to point out Costco. I would also say that some of the other big grocers, maybe it's Kroger, for example, that um, you know have done stuff with Neuro, and I believe that we'll see all these players have deep partnerships with AV companies, and some of them will actually make um, pretty big acquisitions in the next five years. I'm I'm quite certain of it. I agree with you on that because Costco's interesting because their membership revenue, if you look at the breakdown of that, that's a highly profitable stream of revenue where they have pricing power. It's like Netflix. Okay, we're going to raise it $2 a year and people, consumers keep paying. And you mentioned Amazon. So now Andy Jassy is coming in in Q3 as the new CEO. Uh, Bezos was very openly about um, robotics and very proud of that. Will things change under Amazon with the new CEO? And will the the rumor that never dies that they're going to make a trucking acquisition happen now that there's going to be a CEO change? Uh, I don't know enough about the new CEO to look into my crystal ball for that. I do think that one of the cultural values of Amazon is they are willing to build things to support the infrastructure of the business that other people and other companies probably aren't willing to do. And they're able to do that one, the, the cultural strategy around how the company allocates capital, but also it's clear that really our relationship with Amazon is um, a, about as much related to the delivery logistics as it is to the products we get. You know, I think, I don't know how you're like with your kind of consumer choices, but so many of the decisions that we make in our family with Amazon are really related to the speed and ease of getting that stuff. Um, even if that you could tell me there's another retailer that might have it for $2 cheaper or something like that. So um, things that support uh, the, their logistics business, it is, I'm convinced that there's a lot more investment coming there, whether it's their own fleet of vehicles, whether it's, you know, you saw the news recently, Grayson, about the planes they were able to purchase, um, you know, in the last couple of months, um, or more in robotics. I, I think we'll see a ton more. And the big question is of the other consumer experiences where you have a, um, you know, a great subscription experience, uh, a, re a recurring kind of thing like Costco has. How will they transform into do more with delivery? And I think. Um, I, I'm expecting actually that most of these big groceries, grocers and retailers will have a better subscription recurring experience and they'll have a lot more delivery to be done. So, you know, it's funny because we used to think that um, all this stuff, all the on-demand stuff was about getting you somewhere and it's really becoming about getting something to you. And think of all the, you know, delivery, you probably get more boxes delivered to you today than you take Uber rides. And which is cl clear, and that's the direction even that Uber has gone in. You know, a lot of the things they're doing from a corporate perspective are about delivery and getting things to you. So that will, will not change. When you look at 
delivery, and I have this conversation on a weekly basis with a friend of mine, is packaging. There's more cardboard boxes coming through my house and my friend's house on a weekly basis. And we always say, well, how do you recycle these? And if you're going to order, say, produce or we live here in Florida and it gets hot ice cream, you have to have the packaging so the ice cream doesn't melt. And if you're going to order some perishable, that to me is the big problem that has to be solved now is, is the packaging and then the, the recycling aspect of it. Any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I guess the really fascinating part and the big opportunity is particularly with these brands where you have a recurring relationship, they're actually in the perfect place to be able to help you with that exact problem. So because the Amazon delivery person is actually coming to your door, you know, every day, every other day, um, they'd actually be in the best spot to be able to do something to complete that chain. So there's a startup that we learned, we're not an investor in, but I learned about recently called Milkman that's trying to do this where of the things you get quite regularly, whether this is soap or laundry detergent or dishwasher detergent or paper towels, basically to get in a subscription of all those consumables and the containers of those, the bottles of those, you would basically put outside your, your house. So when the next one came in, they take the old ones away and fill them up for you, et cetera. And I think particularly with those consumables, there's a great opportunity that Amazon is not taking advantage of yet. Like I'm sure your Amazon packages have probably gotten a little bit more efficient. There appears to be a new brown bubble wrap kind of thing that we've you know seen in the last few months, which is kind of interesting. It's not filled with, it's not bubble wrap, but it's like recycled paper inside or something like that. Um, so the packaging side will get better. Um, but I'm really fascinated by the consumable recurring purchases where the delivery of the next thing takes away some other part of the previous package. And we're not there yet. That becomes really interesting when it happens. And you have a whole other business of how do you clean and sanitize the things that are going back. And then is there some sort of standard or some sort of thing to guarantee or it's like a seal like on a rental car? Now, OK, this car has been disinfected. So that opens up a whole new opportunity. When you're looking at markets I think that we're in a massive EV bubble in the, in the public markets where you got the Churchill news um, on February 15th that the, they could acquire uh, Lucid through a SPAC. It goes up 33%. There's no revenue. Do you think that we're in a in the EV hype bubble in the public markets that at some point it's going to come down to real, reality that somebody then is going to come together and pick them up for pennies on the dollar and merge them all together to build a truly profitable company? It's a great question. There's... There is a lot of value in these companies. I would not agree with the price for some of the value, though. Um, and so with Lucid specifically, I would say incredibly um, well-engineered and a ton of intellectual property at Lucid, formerly Ativa. And as you know from reading FOT, Grace and I follow patents pretty regularly and patent applications. And I've been impressed with Lucid for I mean, at least five years or so on that front. So a ton of value. They're not selling, they're not delivering cars right now. I know that you could probably pre-order one or something like that. Um, in the next 24 months, we will see a lot of these brands that no one's ever heard of selling real cars, whether it's, you know, some of the Chinese manufacturers, whether it's Fisker, Rivian, Lucid, we're just going to see, you know, four or five new brands that you we're never on the landscape. And so unfortunately it 
takes a lot of money to get a car to start a production. And the SPAC thing is really interesting for the EV world because I, a lot of these companies were tapped out in the private markets because Silicon Valley investors, you can tell them, and I've, I've told them many times, it costs a lot of money to bring a car to start a production, like in the order of many billions of dollars. If you think about the cost of what a Mercedes-Benz um, will spend to bring the new C-Class to market, for example, or even, you know, think about GM bringing a new Chevy truck to market. You're talking about many billions of dollars to do that. It's not raising Silicon Valley venture capital. It's actually a totally different capital structure. And so many of them just had to go to larger sources of financing and SPACs were, I think, the saving grace for a few of these companies that probably weren't going to make it otherwise. Um, but then there's a bunch of companies that are actually really good companies that will SPAC anyway. So SPACs are kind of, in some ways, will extend the life of companies that were maybe going to be okay, maybe go out of business, and fuel a bunch of great companies. The act of doing a SPAC doesn't mean it's a good or bad company. It's just a, it's an indicator of where we are in the market right now. And I, you write about Lucid. Um, their design of the stores are great. That we had um, one of their lead engineers on the podcast, and it's incredible that the engineering talent that went into the vehicle. And I've, I've only sat in the vehicle; I haven't gone for test drive yet. But it's extremely well built, and it's a true luxury vehicle. It's not a vegan interior. They're going for the S five hundred customer. There's no doubt in my mind that they're going for the high end or the seven seven um, series IL. Like that's the customer they're going for. And as I mentioned to Eric, is that there's margins in that business. When you go for that high-end luxury consumer, then you can add on add on services. But when you look at the other non-luxury brands, it reminds me of this passage I like to read you from. There was a book it published in 1921, and the author's name was W.F. Crew, and the book was called The Cycle Industry, Its Origin, History, and Latest Developments. In the book, W.F. Crew wrote the following. Money poured into the coffers of men who had done nothing to build these businesses. They had only been astute enough to see that the market was ripe for flotation. And as the public cried for cycle shares, they got them. The result of all the flotations and the buying and selling of the various concerns was that a few limited made money and a large number of people, many of them workers in the various businesses, lost all of their savings for many years. Fast forward 100 years, it seems like history is about to repeat itself with this EV SPAC boom. What are your thoughts? I think there's a couple of things. One is many of these companies that are going to be that real retail investors can buy shares in soon um, many of them don't have real contracts or real revenues and just because they're an EV company or just because they're a LiDAR company does not make it a good investment the macro trend this decade is of course that we will def this will be defined by zero emission transportation this decade and so I think in some ways people are taking all of the components of Tesla and unbundling it and saying, no, I think there's a company that just does this one thing that Tesla does, you know, whether it's batteries or charging or um, home storage or the EV or whatever. So I think if you were to, like one of those diagrams you see that analysts do, if you were to explode the Tesla business model, you'd probably have 30 logos representing these companies. I do not think that many of those companies are actually going to be great businesses. Um, they're still very high risk because they haven't shipped product yet. So in in some ways, I think the public markets are getting um, 
are, are looking at some of these opportunities the same way that early stage venture capitalists did five years ago, which is like a, there's a really interesting component of that business that might work out. The difference, of course, in the economics of a retail investor in you know looking at one of these companies that has a one in four, one in ten chance of making it is um, you're not going to get the the upside of an early stage venture capitalist. You know, if they go if they're public and they're ten billion dollars, you're not going to see a thousand x you know return on that investment. Whereas if you were an early stage investor in it six years ago, you likely did. So um, yeah, not not all these are great companies. I do think. And I've had a lot of people ask me recently about Rivian. I think that Rivian is a really interesting one because they haven't spacked, not because they couldn't, but because they have probably a different path ahead of them. Um, I posit that there's two big things that's that are going to happen in Rivian's life this year. One is they'll start to ship real product to Amazon and to retail customers, and they'll likely become a public company at some point in the next 12 months. And I think amazing talent there, great engineering, great manufacturing strategy. And, you know, they bought the plant a couple of years ago. So um, there's some good companies coming. So even though we might go through a bubbly, you know, period where some of these EV companies actually are representative of what's wrong in the market, there's also going to be a lot of great companies built that will feel in some ways like when you review what happened in the early 2000s, a lot of those internet companies were actually not great, but then there were actually a few that were like titanic, amazing companies. So um, that's how I think about it. So Bloomberg is, uh, has gone out on the record and said September 2021, traditional IPO for Rivian, traditional roadshow makes a lot of sense. I like Rivian. I think there's incredible talent there. I think there's a great management team there. I just don't see them succeeding as a consumer brand. I see them being owning massive market share of com com electrifying commercial logistics. The Amazon contract was a huge thing. I just see that as their huge path to profitability. I don't necessarily see the consumer side of it. Um, could be wrong, but I think it's a, it's a great company. Am I wrong? They're targeting, I, I, don't, I don't know, because we don't know what they're gonna do over the next couple of years, but they've picked two segments, well, three segments really, that if I was starting an EV company today, I would pick those exact three segments. Commercial vans, which commercial vans don't sound like it, but in reality, commercial vans are like premium vehicles with the margin involved and the, sometimes the price. Utilities and trucks. And there's no, there are some, we will see more EV utilities and trucks from other brands. Obviously, Tesla's gonna deliver a Cybertruck at some point. And, um, but I would describe Tesla's uh, Model Y and things like that. Really, those are crossovers. Those aren't utility vehicles to some extent. Now, they might build a, a SUV off of Cybertruck. It would seem likely that if they're going to spend the effort to do Cybertruck, they might as well cover it and make a, an SUV out of it. But um, uh, utilities and trucks and positioned in the way that they're doing Rivian is kind of like, you know, the Patagonia North Face outdoorsy um you know, position of the company is really smart. Um, so I think that they've picked the three really amazing segments. The fact that they don't have a sports car or something like that, totally fine, you know. Um, so I I think there's something there where people of a certain type are going to want that vehicle. It's the same thing if you think about it, Grayson, like all the people who love um, 
the Mercedes-Benz Sprinter van for like the hashtag van life Instagram culture, <laughs> but it's also the same Mercedes-Benz Sprinter that like delivers Amazon packages. And you, you think to some extent, there's probably some, it's impossible to pull that off from a marketing angle, but they did. And Rivian, I think is in, in that same path. The one thing I think Rivian was absolutely brilliant, which you allude to is the sports utility vehicle. And that's what I keep asking all these like, I'm like Americans like big SUVs. Why not make an all electric SUV? I'd be really curious when we saw the news from from JLR and Tata that they're going to finally electri fully electrify the Range Rover fleet. Rivian has the ability, if they did say the consumer, to go upscale and directly compete with the full-size Range Rover or the smaller Range Rover Sport. Because right now the price point's based on the, the, the new Defender, not the old beautiful Defender. So they have ability to go up. And then you you could probably put a $20,000 $20, margin on that. The margins that you could compete with some of the entry-level Porsches. And that would be really interesting to capture that market because there's a pent-up demand for luxury high-end suvs that are all electric with 400 mile range that are viewed in the eyes of influencers as cool well i just think what you've seen what tesla has taken out of the luxury sedan market and if you look at i think recently they became the fourth biggest premium brand in the united states i think i have that stat right in the last quarter um, so basically, they've taken share away from Audi and, you know, brands like that, BMW notably. Um, the same thing I think Rivian will do for the Land Rovers and the SUV components of BMW and Audi, the eighty dollars to $100,000 SUV market, um, which oddly enough is a pretty, pretty healthy market in the United States and growing. Um, I think Rivian will take a lot of that. So... Um, it seems obvious, right? Like some of these things you think like, well, that consumer is particularly aligned with wanting a great zero emission statement for themselves. There's some other benefits you can get from an EV, but they would, from a positioning standpoint, I bet a lot of those buyers would love that. And there's no real offering for a seven seater SUV right now that is an EV. And you know, other brands will come to market, but I think Rivian is going to be there pretty soon with something that's going to be really compelling. So I think it's it's well positioned. Yeah. You mentioned statement. The individuals that I know that own electric vehicles didn't buy as a statement. They bought it as a matter of convenience. They don't have to go to the gas station anymore. Um, they do not like going to the gas station. So they get it home. They plug their they plug it in. And that's why they bought it. So I think that's a big segment that we have to count there, especially if you, if you don't drive very, very far. Um, so we, 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 we talked a lot about electric vehicles and love to pivot here to autonomous vehicles for a minute. What new trends do you see emerging in the next 12 to 24 months? Do you can, do we see this massive consolidation or, or do we get a point where Waymo goes public and then all suddenly now there's a pressure on margins across the industry because now Waymo's out there in the public market? I don't, you know, I don't know if Waymo's going to be public soon. Um, I'm sh I assume that the big, you know, AV entities have had an opportunity to do a SPAC or maybe to go public, but um, I don't know about that. I, I do know that particularly on the logistics front, if you're, if you've built something in logistics around automation, I know for a fact, many of those companies have been courted by the SPAC sponsors to maybe go public. But to the, the heart of your question, Grayson, is what, how will these big kind of the big players in the space, um, how will they all sort of even out? And I think that 
it's really it's going to be really hard for these corporates over a long period of time to sustain the the capital allocation into these projects. I mean, we're talking about making 10 figure commitments to these companies every year, at least. And um, I think automation in a robo taxi environment is a at least 15 to 20 year commitment. And if you look at, you know, companies are typically run, you know, you get a new CEO every three or four years. So therefore, by my math, you have to withstand all the board changes and the CEO changes for probably five or six of these, you know, turns before the autonomy thing actually delivers you a full robo taxi system. And I think there are very few companies that are willing to stick to it that long. Um, very few, probably fewer than exist today. Um, on the other hand, the what I call the structured autonomy spaces. So if you look at, you know, dedicated routes in cities or logistics or ag or mining or things like that. Those are the nearer term possibilities and opportunities for automation where you can have real value sooner. Um, and I'd love to, your take on this, Grayson, but I think 2020, and you've always been a, a real enthusiast of the trucking and logistics space in this, in AVs. I think 2020 was the year that it flipped where when we would talk about AVs with the press or with, you know, at an event, it was always about robotaxi until 2020. And then last year, probably around April, when everybody realized how many deliveries they were doing, it all of a sudden became about logistics AV. And you didn't hear anything about robotaxi AV for quite a while. So I'd love to hear what, what you think about that. It's about time. Um, I, lo I looked at it from, from an investor's perspective where I said, okay, it, I couldn't, I, all the math I did and all the, running all these different equations and different things to do it, I couldn't come up with my own head of an equation from an investor's perspective, how you can make a robo taxi profitable the next 15 years. With trucking, I started to, I ran all the numbers like, wait a second, there's a, there's a massive opportunity here. And then when you start diving into uh, the complexity of the driving, so if you're a too simple truck going down the highway, that's an easier driving domain than it is driving in a dense urban environment. And you've done some stuff at Stanford where you've given examples where the edge cases, if a child kicks a ball into the street, how do you prepare for that? Or if somebody falls over, they decide to, to jaywalk. There's all these things on the, on the highway. It's, it's much easier and there's just a way to make money. And at the end of the day, I always argue, if you're going to build a company, you have to make money. You're not here to sit here and, and smoke hundred dollar bills or plaster hundred dollar bills on the, on the side of the, just to print money. You have to make money. And so I'm really excited to see this giant shift towards logistics. And then the one thing that I can't figure out any company is Aurora. You've got the pack car deal, you've got the Uber deal, and then now you've got the Toyota deal. So you've got, a, let's say 70% of the company focused on RoboTaxi, which show me the math, Chris, how you're going to make a profit. And then you've got the pack car deal where you actually have a path to profitability. So are you going to use the trucking to subsidize the path to profitability on RoboTaxis? And then the big question I ask myself, do robo taxis even make sense if you're not going to run them in a uh, in a hospitality environment? I think that there's a massive opportunity to run them in a resort, in a controlled environment, or run them in resort towns where people have have expendable spendable capital. They like to drink, so you eliminate the drinking and driving problem, and then you can upsell them. Hey, well, if you take this vehicle, we'll give you a premium beverage on your. Oh, okay, I'll pay the extra money on that. And as we, as Samuel Brofman all said, well, why did you go in the liquor business? I went in the liquor business because that's where the people spend the money. 
and the liquor business is highly profitable. So you have the, the ability to expand margins. Running an individual in a downtown from uh, point A to point B just not profitable. I, I, I just don't I don't I don't see it. With Aurora specifically, I mean, I, I guess uh, you know, unbelievable talent, right? Like some of the the iconic, you know, people who really defined what how we think about the autonomy industry today are founders of Aurora. So just unbelievable amount of talent. Um, and I think it's interesting in some ways, I don't know the Aurora business model because I'm not an investor, but I've always thought of Aurora as um, kind of like a big ad agency um, with their partnerships in the sense that if you were to think about a, you know, um, an Ogilvy or McCann Erickson, they're really going after getting the Pepsi account and the Chevy account, like they're going after the really big partnerships and they do creative work so that those brands can succeed in their own mission. Um, I don't know if that's an accurate way to describe Aurora, but that's how I've always held it in my head that it was about those really big partnerships. And so I guess it's a reflective of some of those customers want to do different things. You know, some might want to do, um, you know, logistics stuff. Some might want to do robo taxi. I think that's a, in my mind, that's a clear distinction between Waymo, which does not have a, I think in some ways they have vehicle partnerships and technology partnerships, but they don't necessarily have customer partnerships because Waymo, since it started really has been trying to design its own network and its own system to do so, right? And which is why I think it's indicative of this is so early days for automation that you have these big companies with very different points of view on how the industry is going to play out. Now contrast that with like the car business, which is to say everybody kind of does the same thing in the car business. They kind of build cars that look the same. The executives go in and out of the companies are all the same. They kind of sell vehicles on roughly the same margin to the same dealer network. They kind of do the same thing. And the AV space is like completely different. You know, you have people who say like, no, we're only going to sell technology to our partners. We're only going to license it. Others say we're only going to do it ourselves. Think about you know, Starsky Robotics, a company that we were invested in, went out of business about a year ago, was really just trying to build a trucking fleet for itself. It did not want to have a partner model like uh, Too Simple or something like that. Um, and so you have just like completely different strategy approaches in AV, which is another example of why it's just incredibly early. You know, eventually, maybe years from now, there will be a generally accepted business model for AV fleets. We're not there right now. Different models are, are healthy. I just don't think it's healthy when you when you look at the billions of dollars that are being invested with no path to paying back your investor or no path to, to profitability. But the one thing we do agree on is that you need you you need some sort of partnerships to do this. You can't go at this alone. You have to have like you mentioned like the you, like the Pepsi contract or the UPS contract, like you're you're going to need those, and then I think we're going to have several business models. I just I think that somebody needs to take the industry to the Harvard Business School and teach them how to run a profitable business. Because at some point, your colleagues in the venture capital industry are going to turn off the spigot, and at some point, the Larry Finks of the world and the T. Rowe Prices of the world are going to turn off the spigot. And now, if there's no, if there's no more cash subsidizing this, it's like, oh, 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 now what do we do? We we don't we don't have the the Federal Reserve printing money anymore. What do we do? And I think that's if if 
It's it's very difficult to make the, the economics on sort of generalized robo taxi go to any any address are very difficult for anybody to work out. I think what it, perhaps not as sexy and not as interesting, but is the real answer to your question is today if you go to the off public road applications like construction, mining, or ag, and we have a company in ag called Bear Flag Robotics, which works with John Deere and some other manufacturers and basically creates automated farm vehicles. Um, it's an incredibly high margin opportunity there. And it's not just about moving the vehicle in that space. It's all these other things you do. So you might pull something behind the um, tractor. You might you know, perform some application, whether it's spraying or disking or mowing or something like that. And then in construction, you have incredibly high margins for the driving task and the things you do beyond just moving the vehicle because the vehicles in both those applications ag and construction they're going like three miles per hour and of course they're on private roads so they don't really have to adhere to you know NHTSA rules or, or DOT rules and they don't have a passenger so the near-term margin opportunity in things like construction ag is really fascinating it's just of course not what TED talks are about you know, TED Talks are about global robotaxi fleets and cool visualizations like that. Um, and that's just quite some ways away from my point of view. But companies like Bear Flag are for investor talks because right. they're sustainable <laughs> right. businesses that right. make sense. Yeah. And, and, I, and you point out the, the holy grail on this. They're on private property. Yep. You don't have to deal with the regulatory environment. So then you're, you're going to save costs there. And they're doing meaningful good. They're, they're serving a purpose. Like they're, right. they're doing something, which makes a ton of sense. Yeah, I mean, you can even look at, there's a, we're not an investor, but there's a company called Avid Bots, which does um, automated industrial floor cleaning. They're basically, if you think about like a, agri, um, a more aggressive, larger industrial Roomba, that's what Avid Bots does. And incredible business, you know, like, uh, you know, factories and, and big warehouses need their floors cleaned. These robots do a great job of it. It's on private private land. There's no driver. There's no passenger. Perfect application. Um, doing great. So that's what autonomy looks like today. And I, I, we've seen founders that have moved through this value chain, too. Like, I remember we saw a founder that was trying to start a robotaxi company in 2016. We saw him a couple years later trying to build logistics uh, company. Couple years after that, it was like a you know a picking robot for uh, agriculture applications. So, over time, I think some of these founders have become more and more structured and focused with their approach. The focus is great because they they have the experience. They're they're not going to chase the 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 shiny object in the store. They're 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 focusing. Wait, actually, there's a business here. I can do something because they've they've been through all all the pitfalls. And I love my iRobot that takes me all cleans my floors and does a great job and. I can't wait to see what new inventions that companies that you invest in or that entrepreneurs create. And Riley, we've covered a lot of ground in, in, during this podcast, and it's been a truly insightful conversation. As we look to wrap up this conversation, what would you like our listeners to take away with them? Yeah, I think, you know, transportation in my mind is just such an unbelievable area for interest for students and for investors. I think, you know, it, the opportunity to change things in transportation is really doubly impactful because it really impacts all parts of life. And 
I think no no better definition of that came you know right after the lockdowns last March, where so many things that were related to transportation logistics were deemed essential. Right, transportation is really the ultimate essential work to do, and it defines consumer life, but it also defines so many aspects of freedom and individuality. And your access to transportation is often an indicator of some of the economic penalty or benefit you receive in a particular area you're in. And so we've always believed at Trucks that, you know, our investment should make transportation safer, cleaner, and more accessible. And I would recommend whether you're a young person starting a company or you're an investor looking at the space, transportation is kind of this, um, it's this word that touches so many different parts of life. And that's why it's so impactful. And it's why I think, by the way, as an investor, you can look at the different, you know, sort of sign curve in the market. And at any one time, there's a part of transportation which is overvalued and undervalued. And so we can talk about the crazy overvaluation of EVs. We can also talk about the crazy undervaluation of some other segments. And when new car sales go down, used car sales go up. So there's this wonderful aspect, this kind of complete marketplace aspect of transportation and um, that's why it's really fun. So thanks again, Grayson, for having me on. Oh, you're welcome. As we, we've heard on the podcast today, transportation is changing. And Riley, thank you so much. Thanks, Grayson. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. Tune in next week to hear from the Vice President of Engineering at Arrival as we discuss the mobility and transportation solutions supported by the Arrival ecosystem. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast. 